Greetings in Jesus' name. Good to be here with you all tonight. I trust that you had a good day and that you came with open hearts and minds, including myself. Sometimes as you study, you get this overload and it kind of feels like you're under a cloud of something and that's kind of how I feel tonight. It seems like that every time I want to talk about the Exodus and I have such a desire to talk about the Exodus and find how it parallels with our story. Because the Exodus, in a sense, is the greatest story written outside the story of Jesus and redemption because it's a story of redemption. And so tonight, as we venture into that, I'd like to at least look into that. But before we do that, let's stand and say the Shema together. And I'll say the words, and then you repeat the Hebrew after me, and then we'll go into the English and say that together. Okay? Repeat the words after me. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Ve'ahavta. Et Adonai Eloeka. Bachol. Levavka. Uvachol. Navshaka. Uvachol. Meodecha. Ve'ahavta. Leriacha, Kamocha, Amen. Okay, let's say them together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Let's say these together. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Thank you. You may be seated. I don't know if you noticed, there's something interesting here in the Shema that's different in the New Testament than in the Old. In the New Testament, it's might and mind. Why would it not be the same in the Old? It only stops with, whoops. It only stops with might. In the new, it has mind as well. If I'm correct, there's no Hebrew word for mind. That comes with the Greek philosophies. Mind, remember? We want story, words. Here is our story written in words for the mind. When you look in the Eastern way, it's all about picture and might and power and not just that, but it's about literal. And I don't know if that's the reason that it's not mind here. I think it is. And then it was, I don't know, maybe Jesus used it because he was in the Greek world already when he was here. Not that it's right or wrong, but it's just an interesting, I think it's an interesting, uh, at least an interesting thought. And then Abraham here in Genesis 15, we'll go to that then as we start in here. I like to start with a story again, and then we'll open it up because I have a question, and I mentioned it to a few people last night about how we take things out of context, see if we can bring it back into context. First one is, again, it's a rabbi story, and this one, this story is, is always 
uh, good for me because I have a tendency to get up in the morning and go make brick. I get up and I'm ready to go. If I'm the way I have been wired all my life, it's get up and I'm gone. I'm, I want to go do something, whatever it is. And I'm, I've, I've worked about 40 years of slowing down in the morning and just enjoying life. And I think the more I understand about resting in the evening, getting up in the morning and taking that time is important. But this rabbi was a very, just like all rabbis, he's very dedicated, listens to the voice of God. And every morning, he would never miss his, his devotional in the morning, ever. But one day as he was walking out his walkway, beside his walkway on the left side, there was a huge rock. And the voice of Yahweh, the voice of God, comes to him and he says, Rabbi, it says, yes, God, or yes, Father, uh, but here I am. And he said, Rabbi, I want you to push the stone every morning as you leave, my, as you leave your house with all your might. And the rabbi said he would do that. So after quite a while, every morning as he left, he would push this stone. And then one morning as he was doing this, another voice came to him, cursed be he the devil, came to him and said, Rabbi, why are you pushing the stone? Well, because God said I should push it. My father said that. But he said, Rabbi, you've not, pushed, you've not moved this stone. You know it's too big. You can't move the stone. And he does what we often do. We started, he started rationalizing, and well, this is really illogical. I shouldn't. Why am I doing this? I can't move it anyway. And so he decided it's just not necessary to stop and do that. So every morning he would have his devotions like usual, and then he would go. One morning as he was walking out his walkway again, the voice of God comes to him. He says, Rabbi, I miss you. He says, what do you mean you miss me? I had my devotions. He says, no, Rabbi, I miss you. You're not pushing the stone anymore. And then the rabbi starts his argument with God, and he says, yeah, but, Rab but God, I couldn't move the stone anyway. And then the voice of God comes back, and he said, I didn't ask you to move the stone. And then the rabbi started listening, and he said, Rabbi, do you remember what this did for you as you, as you pushed on that rock, how it gave you great biceps that you could carry the load of the weak? It gave you a strong back that you could carry the widow's load up the hill? Remember? And so often, that's what happens to us. God asks us to do something, and it just doesn't make sense. And so we just, oh, it's not necessary. But this voice keeps ringing in your head. Call the person. Did you ever have that? I remember it's often I don't, but sometimes I do. I listen, and I call, oh, thank you. Why did you call me now? Did you ever have that experience? Well, something said I should call you. What's going on? And then something was going on. Often, I think if we're children of God, we will listen to that voice. That's the Spirit speaking to us, just like it did to that rabbi. I don't know if that story is true or not, but it's a great story. So push the rock, whatever it is. That's why I do my sit-ups or my push-ups and I run every day. Trying to create good habits that help me stay healthy so that I can be a blessing to others. Mental, physical, spiritual, my teachers have said all go together. Keep it that way. So I'm trying to do that as I get older. And running is not as easy right now because I've been a little lazy. I have to be shook up again. Why am I not doing it? Anyway, 
questions from last night. I quoted one verse, and I said it's often taken out of context. Can anybody remember which one it was? This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 118, verse 24. What is it saying? Someone look it up. I didn't give you the assignment. Someone look it up and read verse 22 and verse 23. See, when you, oftentimes, if you take a verse out of the middle of something, you have to read before and after. In the studies that I've done with these teachers, they never tell you where it's at. They might say it's in Psalm 18, but they don't tell you the verse or anything. Never. Ray Vanderlaan, which he, oh, he would just frustrate me like crazy. Where? <laughs> you go look for it. Because if I just tell you the verse, you're not going to look what's before and after. Then you're going to miss out. What does it say? Verse 22, Psalm 118. Sorry, Psalm 118. Psalm uh, 24 is, this is the day the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now let's read verse 22. Hmm. Go ahead. So what was the day the Lord made? When the one that was rejected became the head of the corner. Who is that? Pharaoh? Who is it? Jesus. Look at that verse now. Isn't it powerful? The day that Jesus came, or the whole story of Jesus, and the redemption story hinges right there. Look, at David saw that way back there. And so the Bible is filled with those things as we go through. Any other thoughts from last night? Questions? Always go back. It's, uh, there's a Jewish saying or a Hebrew saying. Uh, uh, it's not that you look back, but you do look back to go forward. If you don't learn from the past, you're going to make the same mistakes that all human beings have ever made. And that's what we're doing in America. We're just doing what other people have done to the wrecked countries. Or so it looks to us, at least, to us conservative people, at least. Maybe not to everybody, but that's how it looks for us. When you don't look back, even trying to minimize the Holocaust or saying nothing happened, that's been going for a long time, trying to forget in 60 years, 70 years, to forget the Holocaust. Ah, oh, it's never happened. We try to do that all the time. If we don't look back, if we don't go back, we can't move forward, I think. 
So let's keep looking into the scripture. Or is there any other thoughts from last night? What about the thought of Abraham leaving the Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans? Where did he go? To a higher place or a lower place? A more, um, he went from, did he go from poverty to riches? Or from riches to poverty? From high to low, from low to high. Where did he go? From high to low. Just the opposite from normal. And remember how I was talking about chapters 10 and 11 of Genesis, and then all of a sudden God brings this story of Abraham calling him out because he didn't like, I think, imperialism and the hierarchy stuff. He doesn't like it. So he said, let's show the world a different way. And so the story continues. So he calls him from here to here. And this is called a trait route that went from uh, Mesopotamia to Egypt. It was called the Via Maris. Via Maris means way of the sea. And it came right down through this little triangle, this little rectangular piece of land that's called Israel. The hottest piece of real estate in the world always has been. It's like in the middle of the world. Why would God want to set someone there? And Isaiah talks about it so that the world may know that there is a God. That's why. That's the question. That just, to me, makes the question more valid about who am I and what am I doing here? And that's you here. And it's me wherever I'm at. What are we actually doing? Are we doing what God intended or called Abraham to do? And what we... And we'll, we'll look into that. We'll look into the covenant here. So there he established spices from here, food from here. The Nile, we'll look at the Nile. We'll look at Egypt a little bit. Look at the, uh, the whole thing. And I wanted, to, I wanted to play a short video clip, but my computer is as ancient as I am anymore. And it's just being really nasty the last few days. But anyway, I'd like to at least talk about some of these things that we can see what was going on. Why did God put his people into Egypt? Now we know, partly because of what we talked about last night, Joseph was sold there. But Joseph also said, God, you mended for evil, God mended for good. And so it is, I think, if we walk with him, it doesn't matter what happens. So spices from Mesopotamia and food from here, always. And then... Of course, everything that happens in between here is story after story after story. If you look into history, it's amazing what happened here. And so that's where God's people were put. That's where they're at today. Or the Jewish people, I still say they're God's people. God wants so much to redeem them. And I think he's looking to the grafted-in ones to redeem them. Now, let me give you a story. There's a rabbi friend, Moshe. You were probably Moshe's shop. Moshe is a Jewish guy, not a Christian, and we're always after him, you know, telling him, you're missing out. And we argue with him, and he's a good debater, well, all those guys are. They are not afraid to debate, and they can always, almost always outdo us because they know the scriptures so well that we have to grapple around and go page through the Bible for scriptures, and, and they'll just quote it, and they'll just pin you down. If you Anyway, 
<clears throat> Vernon, my uh, co-pastor, he's pretty good with debating, and he debates very well with these guys. He just, he just has this, this knack of loving them, even in the most heated debate, he can love them, and they know it, and they feel it. And one day he said to Vernon, you're starting to make me jealous. Ah, yes, it's exactly what we're supposed to do. And we've done a poor job as so-called Christians to make them jealous. What we've done mostly is hated them. All the way, even through the Reformation time, even all the stuff that came out of there was just horrifying. And all the way back to about 150 BC, uh, AD, yeah, after, after Christ. It's, it's unbelievable how Constantine already changed so much. And we've bought into Rome. I'm, I'm going to harp on that this whole weekend. We've bought into Rome and we don't know it. Search it out. We've always thought Constantine was this Christian empire, emperor. I don't think so at all anymore. There's an arch called the Constantine Arch. On that arch, they find nothing ever that he would be a Christian. But we have the story that he was in battle for, and I forget the bridge that he was battling, and he had this vision. He saw Jesus in the clouds and all of that. They now think it's all made up because he wanted Christians to fight for him instead of the other person. What's so interesting about his arch, if I'm correct, when you come down, and I, I looked at a, a picture coming down toward his arch, right directly behind his arch, because they find his arch is not centered with the road completely. They, they couldn't figure it out. Why? If you come down the road towards the arch, I guess it's, it turns a little bit, and as you're coming down the hill, right behind the arch is a statue of Apollos, or used to be. Apollo rises up above the arch as you're coming down the hill, but when you get down to the bottom of the hill, now the Constantine's arch rises up above Apollo, but Apollo's right behind him. And he's got the same, uh, if you see a, a picture of Constantine, it's like the light flashing you know, from his head, like glowing from, it's like Apollo. There's no difference. I think we've been hoodwinked with the Rome with Rome so much, and we're on a journey to try to debunk all of that and get back to the original, to what was going on when Jesus was here. What was the foundation he laid? And to me, it gets so scary at times I just walk away because it is just so many things that we believe that, that when, I, when I do that, I just, get, I just get taken apart and I can't go there. But I, I, I weep a lot too because it seems there's something really missing from what we've been taught. Innocently, but it's, it's missing. And so that's scary. It's scary to even talk about to people like you. But I want us to be aware we're close to the end. Let's dig in with everything we have to find these things that are really here for us. If we can just be vulnerable enough to open our eyes and find it just like this. Just like Abraham, can you imagine? He was supposed to leave from there, but then they, they moved up here, and he left his dad, his family from up here and came down here, from here on down here. Came to Shechem, built an altar, and what he was doing, he was claiming the land. This is the land that God, and then God promised him 
He promises him the land from the Nile to the Euphrates. That all belongs to God's people. All this land belongs to God's people, according to the promise in the Old Testament. Let's look at, let's look at the, the covenant that God made with Abraham. We, we had the verses there in Genesis 12 where he said, I will take you out of land, I will bless you, I will make you a great name, you will have a great nation. And then he says, everyone that blesses Abraham will be blessed, and everyone that curses him will be cursed. And then he goes on, and he, Abraham ends up in Egypt in the next chapter. And he comes back, and Lot gets taken out of Sodom. Well, Sodom gets destroyed by the five kings, and they go north, and Abraham has to go rescue them. And then chapter 15, God calls Abraham again. And he said, Abraham, I want you to go outside. I want you to look at the stars, the stars of the sky, because that's how I want to bless you with descendants. And Abraham goes outside, and Abraham is like, God, you're pulling my leg, in a sense. Abraham is arguing with God. Now, we say that's really impolite. Well, in our world, it might be, but I think we all do it sometimes, and we think we don't. But Abraham goes out and says, wait a minute. I don't even have a son. I don't have an heir. What are you talking about? And God says, just trust me. I think that's so huge for us. Just trust me is what, in sense, now these are my words, that God was saying. And then we had the verse, and he believed God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness. So he trusted God, I will give you this, what I'm saying. So he said, Abraham, I want you to take a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old goat, and a ram, she-goat and a ram, and a pigeon and a turtle dove. And then Abraham, he doesn't ask more questions. He just goes and he, he, he divides the, the pieces, the, the three pieces, and then he, the birds he didn't divide. But he made what he calls a blood path. A blood path is how a covenant is made. Even in the ancient times, when you wanted to, if you had a daughter and somebody came for the daughter, and they would sit down, and this happened. I know Ray Vandalon shared this story with us when we were in Israel. He shared this story. He was in a Bedouin camp for a week, and one night he comes home, and everything's cleaned up. What's going on? And he had forgot that there was a pole with a white flag, and if there's a pole with a white flag outside their tent, it's saying, we have a daughter that is marrying age. And so all of a sudden he sees a, a cloud of dust in the distance, and sure enough, here they come with camels, and I mean, it's a whole clan. It's not just mom and dad and brothers and sisters. It's mom and dad, uncles and aunts, and all of that. Everybody comes. Oh, this is something serious. And it was. So they sat down across from each other, and they, these families knew each other. And so they were talking, and finally he knew, uh, he knew enough Aramaic that he understood they were talking. They got serious, and then he knew what was going on. They were talking about the, couple, the family that had come had a son, and they wanted their daughter. So now the bartering starts because you're going to have to pay dowry for this daughter, and they're pretty expensive, maybe five camels, 50 sheep, I don't know. But you don't just give a daughter away. Now, there again, I think we have, in the Western world, we've just given it, we've done it all backwards, or, or so it seems. The daughter even has to pay for the wedding. Here, not so in the Bible times. You pay for the wedding if you want my daughter. You take her home, and you got the paper. Anyway, he sat there, and it got intense because what happens, these, the dads are not talking. Only the dads are talking. The dad says all this good stuff about, 
about the boy and they're questioning him. Is he a sloth? Is he going to be a hard worker? Is he going to be honest? Is he going to be fair? Is he going to be a good husband? They want to know. And so they go back and forth, and if they can reach a deal that they can have be betrothed, they will do something that's pretty unique. And this happened, right? He sat there and he saw it all happen. All of a sudden, one of the little boys goes running out, and he comes in with a little goat. <laughs> this goat coming in. And then he saw right in the middle, there was like an, a hole in the floor. And they take this goat, cut his throat, and put the blood and drop the blood in there. And then the dad of the son gets up, and he stumps through this blood. And then the dad of the girl gets up and does the same thing. And what they're doing at that moment is saying that if I didn't say the truth, you can do this to me. That's what they're saying. And if that dad lied, and if they know he lied, his family will not protect him. He will die, and he'll have his throat slit and be a bottom of a ravine somewhere. And that's happened in the ancient times. But that's how binding this is. So think about it. Abraham makes a blood path to make a covenant with God. Imagine, Abraham knew he couldn't be perfect before God, but God said, walk before me and be perfect. How do you do that? So if we go through the chapter, he'll talk about it, and he'll, he says, and darkness came, and darkness fell, and as, as darkness was coming, he was trying to keep the birds and stuff away. But then it says something that's pretty interesting. He says, as darkness came, there's a deep and dreadful sleep came upon Abram. He was scared out of his mind. It's a colloquial expression of being scared out of your mind. And as he was in this trance, I think he was in a trance, God shows up, and he shows up with two symbols. In the Old Testament, we always see God showing up with symbols. It's rain, it can be fire, it can be wind, it can be uh, clouds, it can be earthquake. But that's when God shows up, he shows up in a symbol. Here he shows up, and when the sun set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On the day of the Lord, made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land. What happened at that moment? The picture I get is God said, I will do it for you. God walks through first. Usually the, the, the most prominent one goes first. Like I talked to you about those two families, the father of the dead, which would be the prominent one, or the, the, the one that carries the most weight goes through first. So I think God walks through first. One symbol walks through first, and I like to think of Abraham as just trembling. Then God kind of goes like this. God, Abraham says, no, no, no. I will go through for you. And I think that's the moment that God said, I will give my only begotten son to redeem the world because nothing else has worked. I have called you for such a time like this. And that moment... Abraham, I think, believed, and I think things started changing. And God was on a journey to come back again to his people. Do we believe that if we, are, if we bless Abraham, that we will be blessed? What does that mean? All the people that bless Abraham will be blessed. Is that just a colloquial expression of something? Is that real? Is that a, just a spiritual thing, or what is it talking? Can can you give me some feedback? What does it really mean? All those that bless Abraham, I will bless.
could it mean? What do you think? It's a good thought. When you bless someone, you wish God's best on them. So when you're blessing Abraham, who are you really blessing? Blessing God. Is it also the people that he has called? Is it blessing the Jewish people? That's the epic battle we're in today. Is it still or not? To me, it is. I don't know how, but I think that's how we bless Abraham. By being faithful to what we're called through, through Christ, no doubt. Not through the law, but through Christ. When we walk faithfully, we're being a blessing to the name of Abraham. And we will be blessed in this life to me and the life to come. See, when I look at that, I'm not just living just to go to heaven. I'm living to bring the kingdom of heaven here, just like Jesus said, are we? Now, when we get tired and don't feel good, it's easy to think, oh, just take me home. I'm, I'm not saying that's all wrong. But how about being excited here to see changes? And we say, yeah, but the world is going to pot right now. Really? Are you sure? It looks like it, but do you know there's more Christians in the world than ever? It's never been this many Christians ever in the world. Could it be a better place than it was, even though you have all the wickedness around us? He's called us, what does the Ephesian writer say? He to sit in heavenly places. Whew, almost takes my breath away. It's like watching those men, we talked about Hazak. Is it Hazak? Halak. What were they doing? They were dancing around in a circle just praising God, just so excited that they can have their worship time. It's, it's Shabbat. It's Friday night. We can rest. We don't have to work tomorrow morning. And they were dancing and have, just singing. That's what it's about. Sometimes I think they still do a better job than we do. Suppose God called, you know, uh, he does call us sometimes, but this is a stretch for us, and for me it is too. I, wrote a, I read a book, one of the ladies from church gave me a book, said, Joe, read this. I don't know that I can trust there, and I, I don't know that I agree with him. But he felt, it was a Mennonite pastor, and I'm not sure his status, but God urged him to get his people to learn how to dance. And he said, this is crazy. But he did. And he said, that, changed, that transformed our church. Now, I don't think it's just literally dancing. What about, do the children see your eyes dancing? Is your facial expressions full of excitement? That's what this is about. That's what this covenant is all about. I got sidetracked. Let's go into the story. I think this is what this story is about, too. It is so dynamic to watch what God wanted to do for the children of Israel. Why did he take them to Egypt? What could be the reason God took him to Egypt? 
any thought outside, well, they, they messed up. Really? Could it be deeper? What could it be? Ah, good. That Pharaoh might know. So here's what was going on. It's two stories coming together. And that's what I like to talk about a little bit tonight. These two stories. Maybe God wanted his people to go down because they weren't listening that well. To go down and find out the other story so they could see how powerful their story is supposed to be. And so here they go. There they are. And I don't know how long they were in bondage, but let's just look. If we go into, I think this is the first chapter of Exodus. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. I probably didn't know the works of Joseph, or he didn't appreciate what Joseph had done. And they also, they say that in Joseph's time, they think there was a group of people called the Hyksos. I don't know if you've ever heard that. The Hyksos would have been migrated, would have migrated down from Israel, actually. They knew Hebrew. And so maybe that's the reason Joseph rose to where he did with Pharaoh, because he knew who he was, and he could communicate well with him, they think, because the Hyksos had taken over about that time. That's interesting. But anyway, then they lost their power, and another Pharaoh comes in that doesn't know anything about Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh stores, store cities of Python and Ramses. But the more they oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard work in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Years passed, and the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to groan under the burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See how important that covenant is? I think God still remembers it today when he looks at us because that's why he made the covenant to redeem the whole world, and we're part of the whole world. We're the goyim, the, the Gentiles, that are grafted in. What a blessing. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel, and he knew it was time to act. So here we are. We know the story. Moses was born, and they were starting to be ruthlessly treated, and Moses kills the Egyptian, then Moses flees. So we know they were at least 40, 50, 60 years, maybe it was longer, that they were being treated harshly. And Moses goes, and he's, he's a shepherd for 40 years. Do we have that kind of patience with people? Took 40 years to train Moses. And we have our children growing up, and by the time they're 15, we think they should know better. What about 40 years? Uh, he's been working on me for 40 years, and I got a lot of, lot of little spaces in my life that need some help yet. Really, all of us do. 
But Moses learned something. And one day, one day as he was on the backside of the desert, he, he experienced something. This is called a broom tree. They think maybe that's what was on fire. And he goes, and we know the story. And God starts talking to Moses, just like he does to us sometimes. And he, he calls us to do something. And Moses said, me? They're not even going to listen to me. I got a stuttering tongue. I, I can't talk. And God, God actually gets angry with him after a while. He gives him all these signs. He puts his hand in, it becomes out, it comes out leprous, and he puts it back in. And he throws his rod down, or his stick down, and he, the stick becomes a snake. But the stick becomes a pretty important symbol for Moses. Moses, God said to Moses, when he finally did it to go, he said, Aaron's going to meet you, but take the stick. You need this stick. And this stick became something that God used all through the ten plagues of Egypt. Because we know the stories of the stick. He would reach it out over the, the water, and it turned to blood. Or the frogs would come. Or he threw it down, and it became a snake. Actually means crocodile, that one. It's different than the one in the desert. It means when, when Aaron, he actually had Aaron's stick or this stick that Aaron used. He threw it down. I love that picture. It became a snake. And then the magicians did the same thing, and then it says his stick ate up all their sticks. Have you ever thought of that? That's so bizarre. But that's the God we serve. So this epic battle was going on. Who was Pharaoh anyway? Well, when you see, if you can study Egyptian mythology and understand a little bit who Pharaoh actually claimed to be, he was a deity, he was God himself, in a sense, in their belief structure. Now, as a children of Israel, like I said, I don't know how long they worked that they were just having a good time, but it seems they, they bought into Egyptian way of living because later on God says, these idols you brought out with yourself, you have to get rid of these idols. So we knew they had idols from Egypt. I think we have some of those idols from Rome yet. Or idols from this world because it's so easy to assimilate to the world we're in. Just like they, it was pretty good at one time there. Eight, actually they had, was it some, they had a 10-day week. And at one time, most of the time it was a two-day weekend, but sometimes it was a three-day weekend. And they got paid fairly well. And they had houses they could be in. He gave them house, all the food they wanted. And only, only eight hours a day. That's history. So where do you think we got our eight-hour days? I don't know if it came from there or not. Very likely, way back there. They, it's, it's recorded in history as eight-hour days. So they had a pretty good life, just like we have here. And we've assimilated, I think, into the culture that we're at in a lot of ways. And my scholars and teachers that are not from the Anabaptist background warn us over and over and over again, don't you come here where we're at. We have nothing to offer you. There's not, and I, I want to be careful, I think they do. I don't think we have it all together. But we do have some things that are good. Are we going to use it for the glory of God or not? So the children of Israel, I think, bought in. And Pharaoh, if he's God 
and I, I'm not going to go into all I'd like to, but I, here's where I always struggle because there's so much of, if you look at their story, they had a creation story as well. And the creation story was about the earth above or the earth below and the heavens above. And in between was, was this sea and then he created a bubble like in here and, and Pharaoh controlled that bubble. So Pharaoh had to be faithful. If he wasn't faithful, then the sun wouldn't come up in the morning. So let me just show you some pictures. Oh, okay, I thought I didn't have this in here, but I do. Anyway, here is Goshen. That's where the children of Israel went, the best part of the land. Why would he take them to the best part of the land? Now, Pharaoh was pretty happy when Joseph's family came down. He was pretty proud. And he said, give them the best land. So that's where they were, right up here, the best land. The Nile would flood every year. It would flood out as many as 20 miles. And we'll show you some of the pictures from Egypt, and you can understand why. But here are the pyramids. Has anybody ever been in Egypt? Nobody's been in Egypt. I, we got into Cairo at night. And I woke up the next morning, and I looked out the hotel window, and I, th I thought the, the pyramids are way out in the, somewhere in the middle of the desert. You've got to drive miles to get to. I looked out the window, and right there was Giza, the biggest pyramid. Why would they make these pyramids? You might, we might even ask, how in the world did they make these pyramids? And I look at it, and I wonder myself. This thing is over 400 feet square on the bottom, and it's over... I know it's like more than that high. I forget how many stones are in it. It's mind-boggling. How did they do it? That's what we ask. They say, why would they do it? Why would they build pyramids? Well, we'll go on and you might see why. This is a big deal. The story of the Egyptian mythology is a big deal. And I think God brought the children of Israel there so that we could, as today, understand the big deal of the world, and also still of God's story. It's two stories colliding. Colliding, who is God? But it's amazing. The tombs were in here of the pharaohs. It's creating a story, what it's doing. Instead of writing it in a book, they build stuff. Now, is that better? Or I don't know that it's better, but it impacts quite a bit. I'll never forget when I saw the, the pyramids the first time, ever. It's like, Phew. and then you walk up to it, you feel like this puny little uh, grasshopper almost. And that's what Egypt was all about. Everything was big. Let me show you. And of course, then you have the Nile. Amazing. Beautiful waters. Everything close to the Nile is green and rich and lush. It's alfalfa. And you'll see better yet. Watch the next one. I watched him cut this stuff. It was almost three feet tall. This is where the children of Israel grew up. Most of them. For 430 years they were there. Everything was beautiful. Imagine leaving that and going into the desert. And you can go from here and you can have one foot in a field like this and the other foot in the desert at the same time because now it's all irrigated. They say here, because of all the flooding that has gone on over the thousands of years, that there's a few hundred feet of topsoil here. You'll never run out of topsoil here, ever, they say. This building here is Karnok. This is the place, the worship center of, of, of the Egyptians. This was all covered with silk at one time. 
The whole structure was covered because of the flooding of the Nile. But this, this place is part of the story. These walls at one time were over 100 feet tall. The pillars here and inside these walls, the reason they build them this big, and we'll go inside and look at some things inside, but inside is what order is where order was. This was Pharaoh's responsibility to keep order. Now let's put the ten plagues here. Pharaoh was to keep order and chaos. In, it has, you can never have chaos in there, ever. It has to be outside. So when you walk in through there, because this is Pharaoh's palace, where he's responsible to make sure that the sun comes up in the morning. And if he doesn't do right, that's how they looked at it. Now, we don't believe that, that we could do something that wouldn't make the sun, which God is much bigger, and that's what God was trying to say. Here, these lions, these lions are, they think were over a mile, what was a mile and a half to the Valley of the Kings or more, and the street was lined with lions like this on both sides. And underneath each lion is underneath each lion is a pharaoh. Under the chin of a lion. This is Amun-Ra, the, the ram god. That's the god, that's the main god of the Egyptian belief system. And Pharaoh was in such connection with him that he was under the chin. And this reached out for a mile and a half on both sides. It is and these are 12 feet tall at least. It's, everything is huge over there. And it's to impact and make you look small and so they can crush you. It's not for the weak and the feeble. Just the opposite of God's story. God says care for the weak, the homeless, the AIDS victim. Here, you don't have room for that. It's about the powerful, about Who's the, the most powerful is the one who wins. The others will be crushed. Inside these pillars, the story is written on those pillars. There's, there's the hieroglyphs on the, every pillar. I think there's 120, 130 of them in just this temple. They're 60 feet tall. I think that statue is at least 35 feet tall. This apolis is 85 feet tall. It's one piece red granite. 85 feet tall. And think about it. The story of Egypt. Pharaoh, the god of Egypt. He's going to do what it takes to make sure that what they believe is going to happen. And here comes Moses and Aaron. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh is challenged with something. And I think God wanted him to explicitly know that there is someone much greater than himself. And so the Bible says that God challenges is going to challenge the gods of Egypt. Not necessarily destroy the people, but he wants to destroy the gods of Egypt so the story begins, and Moses and Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron come in and start challenging Pharaoh. They still make brick like this today. When I was there in 17, we helped them make brick. Exactly the way they did 4,000 years ago. They still look the same. This size brick 
you find all over Egypt in those old houses. It's manure, topsoil, and straw, just like they did way back. As you can see from the day before, and then they had to burn them in the kilns. Sometimes this was actually in the desert, in the Sinai Desert, where they would have to go and work, ruthlessly work. And then Moses comes, and we know what happens. Pharaoh gets upset, and he says, you're just making my people lazy. Go back to work. And by the way, taskmasters, don't give them any straw anymore, but don't drop their quota. And it was tough. They came to Moses and Aaron and said, ever since you've done this, you've made life rough for us. And Moses pleads with God, why are you doing this? And he said, I'm doing it because I want Pharaoh to know that there is a God among my people. Exactly the same reason God wants the world to know that there is a God among his people today. No difference. He's called us to be the same. I wonder how much we're showing the world how much of a God is living in us. And so finally they cried out to God, Sa'aka! It just says they cried out. I don't even know they knew anymore how to, who to cry out to. The word means they just cried out. And then it, it, but it says that God heard their cry and their groanings. And then it started. But the magicians could do the same thing. Blood and the magicians did their enchantments and blood came onto the waters. Then frogs. They called up frogs as well. Did you ever think about this one? Frogs everywhere. In the beds, in the kneading trough. I mean, can you imagine baking a cake? Frog legs sticking out everywhere. They were everywhere. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, when do you want me to entreat the Lord? He said, tomorrow. Are you kidding me? Isn't that what we do, though? You have something you should really change. Or you should start exercising. You know, we'll, we make these, uh, I don't, but we, I used to make these New Year's resolutions. They last for a month or two or maybe a day or two. I'll do it tomorrow. No, you won't. Now. Pharaoh says, tomorrow. That's pathetic. But that's who he was. He wasn't going to lose this battle. I'm in control, he thinks. And then, I think, what is the next one? Is it the lights? And then the magicians can't do it anymore. Whoop. Something is going on. And the magicians tell Pharaoh, Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. I like this picture, the finger of God. It means the little finger of God. And God starts speaking because from there on, they can't do anything anymore. His magicians are done. And the battle is raging. Do you know when a pharaoh dies, they take his heart and put it on a scale? And they put the heart on, one, on the one side of the scale and a feather on the other. And if the heart is heavier than the feather, he was a poor, he was a bad pharaoh. 
Now, I don't know if they literally do that, but think about it. He will not end up in a good place if his heart is heavier than a feather. I can't imagine anybody's heart ever being heavy, lighter than a feather. But that was their mythology that they believed. And the magicians said, Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And I like it because Jesus brought it up again in Luke chapter 11, verse 20. He says, if I, with the finger of God, drive out demons, know that the kingdom of heaven is near. I think, to me, it goes back here because God was establishing a kingdom for the first time in a different way than ever before. And he was calling his people out for a reason. So the plague's gone, we know that. Let's fast forward to the end of it. See if we can get more. I like, this is always a great picture. I think Pharaoh kind of, this stern fella, just wouldn't give up. And here you'll see these pictures often. I have another one I think that might be more clear. But let me just show you this one. They're like 10 people they have, they're hanging on with their, it's, it's a picture of Pharaoh beating people. All over, hundreds of them. And he always has this crook, a shepherd's crook like this. A shepherd's crook is this. We always have, the Bible story pictures have the crook, you know. You, you might find a few. Most of them are like this. This is a shepherd's staff. It has, this actually comes from Davis County. It was right here. One of the, uh, one of your men made a comic. Which, who was it? Some, when I was here, yeah. Yeah, was it Merv Beach? Yeah, that's who it was. He, I said, I was at his place. said, oh, I need a stick. I forgot my stick. He says, all right, I'll, and he comes with this one. It's, it's the best one I've ever, it's, it's a Moses stick. It's, it's just, it's right. They had a knob on here. This is what they would use to fend off enemies, like the lion or whatever it could. Now, I'm not saying there weren't crooks, but if you look at Pharaoh's pictures, their hieroglyphs on the walls, it's this with crook. He used, them, he used them to beat people all the time. It's not what they're for. But that was Pharaoh. And that's what Moses did before he went out to the desert. But he came back, learned a different way. What I wanted you, what I wanted to do is show you this clip from Ray Vanderlaan. If it works, we'll, we might do it tomorrow night. This, a, a short clip, about eight minutes. Here is a little Hawthor temple. And when he did his video series, he was going to go in here and I'm not sure exactly what he was going to do. But they couldn't get his mic to work, microphone to work. He, would, he went in and it died. So they came out, they rewired him, he went in, it died again. And finally, he came, the second time he came out, they were starting to get, he said, it was, this was serious business. The battle is still going on today. It didn't work until they hardwired him. And he went in there, and, I, and he challenged all the gods. And it almost makes your hair stand on edge. But this was the battle. And we say, well, it was just gods, stones. But when you believe in that stuff, it's like, I think it's is it Ezekiel that talks about the children of Israel. He said, but you have offered your, your idols or your, your things to idols, and that's like offering it to demons. It's real. And then God says this, I am the Lord, I will bring you out
from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Four promises that he gave to his people that he would do for them. And we know what, what happened at the last plague. Plague was the death of the firstborn. But before that happened, God said something to the children of Israel. He says, now, this is always going to be the first month of the new year. Well, their new year starts in the fall, but the spring of the spring. So I want you to keep Passover. He instituted Passover for the first time. He says, now, I want you to do this every year. This story is amazing. Now imagine this. To do Passover, you had to kill a lamb. Supposed to be more pictures here. Maybe they're under. All right. All right. There was a few pictures I wanted to. What I wanted is. You don't sacrifice a lamb in Egypt. That's an abomination. Because a lamb is a picture, a symbol of Amun-Ra. And Amun-Ra is their main god. So imagine, God said to them, you take a lamb, a year, old, a year old lamb, and I want you tonight to sacrifice it, to kill that lamb. I want you to apply the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. But what if they see us? They're going to kill us. Because you don't do this. You don't sacrifice lambs in Egypt. There is no greater sin than that. Think about it. I, it had to be a real challenge for them. We could die tonight, all of us. They could have. But they trusted God one more time. And when death came, Pharaoh said, leave. And they left. But the Passover was instituted. And the Passover has been kept ever since because the Passover is filled with so much joy because that's the deliverance. That's when deliverance, when God delivered them. So every year they celebrate Passover. I think we should do the same when we have communion. It's, we have communion. It's celebrating our redemption story. Theirs is 4,000 years old. Not quite, 3,400 years old. They still celebrate. And by the way, these these four promises that God gave them, I will deliver you, I will set you free, I will take you out of bondage, and I will be, I will take you, which means I will marry you. Those four cups are still celebrated in the communion table or in Passover. Actually, we should celebrate them in communion table too. That's unbelievable. Greater yet, look what God did on Passover. For 1,300 years, every morning and every afternoon, they made a sacrifice. God said every morning, and he, instituted, he, he brought this in Sinai then. And I won't get there. It's, I'm running out of time. But 
he brought it at Sinai and he said, I want, you to, inst- I want to institute this every morning and every afternoon. You would hear this every morning and every afternoon. And when you heard this, was time for worship, for a sacrifice. They did it for 1,300 years at 9 and at 3. And then one day, it happens again. And someone is put on the cross at 9 o'clock in the morning. And at 3 o'clock, the rending of the temple, the curtain in the temple when he died. He became the exactly on the day, on the minute. Wow. That's the God we serve, not the God that Pharaoh served. Because Pharaoh didn't give up. And that night, they were delivered. And God showed up in a way that was pretty phenomenal. Now imagine getting to the sea. And all of a sudden, you hear chariots coming. 600 of them, if I'm correct, plus all the other chariots coming to get the children of Israel. The sea is in front of you, and they could have gone another way. They wouldn't have been trapped, but God brought them here. One more test. And Moses and the children are starting to panic. And God says to Moses, why are you calling out to me? Go do something. That's what he basically told Moses. Go stretch your staff out over the water. What happened? An east wind blew all night long. Dried up the the ground, and they crossed over. They were delivered. They had done nothing for that deliverance in a sense. showed up. It's called grace. You know God's grace is so prevalent in that part of the book? They didn't do anything to deserve it. Not yet. Just imagine. I, I, again today as I studied this, I sat there and I thought, how? How do we do this when we get up to something that's really, really hard? God said, start moving. There they were, the walls on either side. He didn't, they didn't know. They, had, they didn't know if they're going to stay there or not. We know because we're behind, you know, the story was way before us, but they didn't know. They, they walked through. Can you imagine the first person out on the other side? And encouraging the others to come called community. And that's the start of God establishing a relationship with a group of people like never before. And to the Jewish mind, that's where the kingdom of heaven started. Deliverance from God. 
And you know this same spirit, the Ruach of God, is the same Ruach that blew that night. The same. A strong east wind that blew that night. It's the same word that also rested on the 120 at Pentecost. The same. That had to be one phenomenal journey. But I wonder if it's much different than ours. How often have the waters been parted in your life and mine? Maybe even unawares. And you travel at work many times that God has saved us from something that we're not even aware of, maybe. Maybe we are. But their faithfulness here and trusting their leader and trusting God brought them out on the other side. Now what happened? Let's see. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider has been thrown into the sea. Pharaoh's last-ditch effort. Into the sea he goes. And Moses again. And the sea is calm. He had told the children of Israel, you will never see these people again. Which God, do you remember which God it was, the God of the sea? Was it Heth? God of war. That Pharaoh might have thought, well, he won't leave me down. Set, I'm not sure which one it is, but it was the God of war. Probably won't leave me down. I'm going to try one more time. And he goes into the water. So they're on the other side. The horse and the rider has been thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Did you ever know that God is a warrior? He is. He fights for us, literally, I think, at times. He'll fight for us. He's a man of war. Now, that doesn't fit piety too good, does it? I think it does. We should be men and women of war. I mean, not killing people, please. It's like David throwing stones, and I talked to the students this morning. He threw stones for God, and when God needed a stone to be thrown, he could throw it. That story has so many beautiful pictures of David and Goliath. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host were cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. The right hand, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Oh, I love, I'm not sure the translation, which translation it is. It might be the NLT. I just love the way it reads. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. You, you send them, you send out your fury it consumed them like stubble at the blast of your nostrils. The waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. Who is he like? Well, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Isn't that a powerful question? There is none like him. Isaiah writes, there is none like him. 
And here they're saying, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand, and the earth swallowed them. And now this. What? And Miriam, the prophetess, sister of Aaron, took out a timbrel or a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out with her, after her, with tambourines and with dances, and Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and rider are hurled into the sea. I wonder if we take enough time to rejoice at times. How much time do we spend celebrating when one soul is found for the Lord? You know what we often do, especially something, let's say there's someone that has struggled for a long time and we finally hear he's found peace finally. We say, eh, we'll see. Instead, what if we would go and bless that person, say, I'm so excited for you. I'm going to somehow speak life into you. I want you to have the, the best life you could ever have. How can I be an encouragement? When we learn that, it'll change the world. That's what was going on here. Now, yes, it was after a great miracle. That's who we are. I don't think God... That's maybe why God doesn't bring more miracles because it didn't do much good for them. A few days later, three days later to be exact, they were murmuring again because they'd run out of water or it was bitter. And you know what? The stick shows up again. And it's, it's called a, a tree. And he throws it into the water. The water becomes sweet again. The stick. Maybe it's what Paul says to us in the Corinthians, in Corinthians where he says, you are the stick. He doesn't say a stick, but he says, you are the temple of the living God. What kind of stick are we carrying with us that resembles God in our lives? He wants to use each one of us, not just as a symbol, but as the messenger to bring the message just like he wanted the children of Israel. Become the messenger of the message. And so for 40 years, they stumbled around in a 37-mile radius. Can you imagine? 40 years, simply because 10 men think we can't do it. We can't. They're, they're done. How often? Have we done that? No, that's impossible. I don't think that word should be our vocabulary, impossible. Or never or always should never be in our... It's not never, it's not always. Sometimes, maybe sometimes not. I'm trying to think of a quote. How that our past changes by how we look into the future. You know, we can be just with what's going around us, we can be discouraged so easy. I think that's what the devil wants. And you know the best way to defeat him? To be excited about the future. 
we have a privilege that nobody's ever had quite like this, quite like us. I'm excited about that. It's too late to give up. So let's give it all we got, just like David did. And I think that's what God is calling the church to be and to do. Let's all stand. Father in heaven, this evening as we think of this great story, how that you brought them out, they really hadn't done anything to deserve being delivered. But you delivered them anyway, just like you've delivered us. We didn't deserve to be delivered. But you brought Jesus and said, now listen to him, obey him, trust him, serve him. And so the epic battle starts after we said, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The battle of truth and false, the battle of sin and righteousness, the battle of flesh and spirit. But you have promised to us that if we are faithful, you will keep us to the end. No one can pluck us out of your hands. And that burning desire is in us. You will keep us in the hollow of your hand. We are like the apple of your eye. Father, as you have loved us, I pray that we would love each other. You have, as you have cared for us, I pray that we would care for one another. Pray that we would speak life to each other and truth in love. If we admonish one another, let's love one another. Father, I pray that we would not tolerate sin in our lives and fear, that you have cast out fear because we can know you. Thank you for the story of deliverance from Egypt. So is ours. And how that you incorporated the Passover and then how Pentecost happened. Just everything was the same. For 1,300 years, they labored and they faltered at times. You brought them back and you brought them back. And so you do for us. You remind us through someone, somewhere, we should walk. Father, as we leave this place tonight, remind us again where we are. We're your children. 